Before this podcast gets started, I should tell you that there is rough language ahead. If you have children with you or in any way are offended by rough language, you might want to skip this episode or at least save it until you are on your own without others, especially small ears listening. Pilgrim has spoken a fair amount over the course of Inferno. He's talked here and there. Not like this. We were about to have the largest speech from our Pilgrim so far, and perhaps one of the longest in all of comedy. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the 19th canto of Inferno. We are amongst the popes turned upside down in holes with the soles of their feet burning up until they get shoved farther on down in the cracks in the rocks by apparently other popes who arrive. We're here in the eighth circle of hell, the circle of fraud. We have been introduced to the Pope in this hole, Nicholas III. We have heard that he expects Boniface at any moment, Boniface VIII, and that after Boniface, another Pope, Clement, will show up all the way from Avignon. And now it is our pilgrim's turn to respond. In this passage, lines 88 through 117, a Difficult passage. Let's get to it. I don't know whether I ventured too far into folly when I answered him with just this sort of verse. Hold up and tell me this. Just how much treasure did our Lord at first require of St. Peter before he entrusted him with the keys? I'm certain he asked no more than follow me. Neither Peter nor any of the other apostles took gold or silver from Matthias when he was picked to fill the place lost by the guilty soul. So sit tight, for you are well punished. Keep watch over the ill-gotten gains that made you so very brave up against Charles. And if I were not otherwise kept in check by my reverence for the great keys that you once held in the easy-come, easy-go life up above, I'd use even rougher words than these, because your avarice saddens the entire world by traipsing over the good and lifting up the bad. The evangelist had your sort of pastors in mind when he saw the one who sits upon the waters and fucks around with the kings of the earth, the woman who was born with seven heads and who got her power from the ten horns as long as her virtue pleased her groom. You have made a god of silver and gold. What's the difference between you and any other idolater except that he prays to just one god whereas you pray to a hundred? Good grief, Constantine. You gave birth to a terrific evil not because of your conversion, but because of your donation that let you make the first super-rich Holy Father. Okay, we're going to stop there because that just seems like enough screed and yelling and screaming and jumping up to biblical references and out to historical references. It seems so complicated, it can barely be 
handled. Let me make a couple introductory comments about this passage before we go out to what we're going to do with it. First of all, this passage is very difficult. As I've already said, it hearkens to certain passages in Purgatorio and even Paradiso. It is full of biblical references, of apocalyptic references, that whole bit about the one who sits upon the waters. All of that occurs here inside the passage, woven tightly into a single package. And you'll note that the historical and the biblical references are woven together in the passage. Charles, Constantine, and then all of these references to various moments from the New Testament. What I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast is I would like to unpack the biblical references, then unpack the historical references, and then unpack the thematic references to the rest of comedy. And after all that, read it once again, this time with your hearing it with the unpacked material in your head. Let's start out with the biblical references the passage starts, I don't know whether I ventured too far into folly when I answered him with just this sort of verse, but then the pilgrim says, okay, here I go, and says, hold up, tell me this. Just how much treasure did our Lord at first require of St. Peter before he entrusted him with the keys? This bit is a biblical reference to the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, lines 13 through 20, and I would like to read that passage to you, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." That's the passage. You should know that in Greek, Peter, his name, is a play on Petros, which means rock, Petros, as in petrified, Petros. So on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And here, the pilgrim yells <laughs> quite a bit at Nicholas about the keys. So I'm yelling at you because you used to hold the keys that Jesus gave to St. Peter in Roman Catholic theology, this is interpreted directly as the papal authority coming through Jesus to Peter, and it passes down through the popes, and, you know, Nicholas ultimately was a holder of these keys. So the question here is, how much treasure did our Lord, that is Jesus, at first require of St. Peter before he entrusted him with the keys? And of course, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is none. You didn't hear any money changed in this passage, did you? You didn't hear Jesus say, slip me a little coin, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> That's so insane. You didn't hear that in the passage, did you? So our pilgrim is saying, look, how much did the keys cost Peter? Nothing but a declaration of his faith. And the 
Pilgrim goes on and says, I'm certainly asked no more than follow me. This is a little troubling. We're going to come back to this because I know when I read you that passage, you didn't hear Jesus say, follow me in it. That's actually a reference to way earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 4, 18 through 20, when Jesus comes along, finds Peter fishing, says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, that is evangelists, that is people who preach the gospel and save souls, fishers of men. So you didn't actually hear it in this passage, follow me. So this passage in Dante's work, comedy, is actually a fusion of Matthew 16 and Matthew 4 into one tercet, one three-line bit. And we're going to come back to that in a moment because there's something kind of curious about that. But that's your first biblical reference, the keys, the gospel of Matthew, two different locations. And then the passage goes on. Neither Peter nor any of the other apostles took gold or silver. And remember, I told you gold and silver is repeated throughout Canto 19 almost as a refrain. Gold or silver from Matthias when he was picked to fill the place lost by the guilty soul. So let's talk about this and about Matthias. And I want to read you this passage. The reference here is to the Acts of the Apostles, the book in the New Testament that immediately follows the four Gospels about Jesus's life. And this is the events that happened to the Apostles post-crucifixion and resurrection in the Gospels. We're in the first chapter of Acts, and Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, one of his disciples, has just committed suicide, has just flung himself headlong and burst open in the middle until the bowels gushed out, as it says in the passage. And now, because there's 11 disciples left, or as they would now be called, apostles, because it's post-resurrection and they are apostles, that is, witnesses to the resurrection, they need to choose a 12th because Jesus chose 12. So it goes like this at Acts 1 verse 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, that is taken up from earth from us, one of these must become a witness, that is apostle, must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, You know everyone's hard. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, that is, to throw himself headlong off a cliff and burst open. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So the second reference here is, again, to Acts chapter 1, verses about 23 to 26. And the question is, again, how much money did the apostles ask Matthias before he got picked? to fill the place lost by the guilty soul, Judas. Notice the wild paraphrasis that goes on throughout this passage. Notice that some people are just named straight out like Charles, we're going to get to that in the historical references, and Constantine, we're going to get to that in the historical references, and other things are left in a kind of weird circular pattern. And here the guilty soul, Judas, is spoken of paraphrastically. You have to know the whole story to know who's guilty and who lost their place. Judas betrayed Jesus, Matthias took his place. So there's two references, one to the gospel and one to Acts, and then you come way on down to the passage and you hit this 
crazy apocalyptic references, which are our final biblical passages. He says that, um, you know, I'd use even rougher words than these for you, but I have a great deal of reverence for the keys. But your avarice saddens the entire world by traipsing over the good and lifting up the bad. The evangelist, and here comes the biblical reference, had your sort of pastors in mind when he saw the one who sits on the waters and fucks around with. The word is quite vulgar in the Florentine. I chose to be as vulgar as possible. We can say screws around if it worries you. Who screws around with the kings of the earth. Or how about this? Who goes whoring with the kings of the earth. The woman who was born with seven heads and who got her power from the ten horns as long as her virtue pleased her groom. So what is this about? This is a reference to what Catholics call the Apocalypse of St. John, or Protestants call the Book of Revelations, the final book of the New Testament, and it's a passage found in chapter 17, and I'd like to read you that passage as well. If you don't know what this book, Revelation or Apocalypse, is about, it is this vision that allegedly the Apostle John has. It's a kind of vision of the end of the world, of the end of times. It's a wild, apocalyptic vision written in typical or prototypical apocalyptic language favored from about 200 before Common Era to about 200 Common Era. It's a very elliptic illusory, illusory, elusive, and metaphorical way of writing about the future. The book of Daniel is partly apocalyptic language. The book of Zechariah is partly apocalyptic language, and certainly the Revelation or the Apocalypse of St. John. So in the 17th chapter, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, seven bowls of judgment, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of those whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her own fornications. And on her forehead was written a name a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. That's the reference here inside of the Dantean passage to this woman here from the Apocalypse or the Revelation of St. John. It is often read as this condemnation of the Roman Empire because there are seven heads, and the seven heads may refer to the seven hills of Rome, ten horns, ten maybe major emperors, even when this is being written, or some emperors and predicting the coming of other emperors, or perhaps it's even a reference to other power structures inside the Roman Empire. Again, elusive, metaphoric, apocalyptic, allegorical language used to describe this corruption. If you know anything about Christian history, you know ultimately that the whore of Babylon is used as a slur by Protestants against the Roman Catholic Church. That may play into this 
this passage as well. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But I just want to uncover actually the reference here. And there's a problem here, and we're going to come back to it. You'll notice that the woman here has seven heads and ten horns, but in the passage that I read you, it's the beast she's sitting on that has seven heads and ten horns. So there's a little bit of garbling in the reference that goes on here, but let us just say that it is generally seen as a condemnation of some kind of Roman corruption in very apocalyptic language. Okay, those are our three biblical references through the Gospel of Matthew, to Acts of the Apostles, and to the Apocalypse or Revelation of St. John that exist in this passage. Let's stop here and pass on to the two big historical references. So, those two historical references. The first is Charles. Let's back up in the passage. How much did did our Lord ask of Peter when he gave him the keys? I'm certain he said, no more than follow me. Neither did Peter nor any of the apostles take gold or silver from Matthias when he was picked to fill their place, lost by the guilty soul, Judas, as we've talked about. So sit tight, the pilgrim says, for you are well punished. Keep watch over your ill-gotten gains that made you so very brave against Charles. The irony and sarcasm is dripping here in the passage. Remember, we're talking about Pope Nicholas III upside down in this hole. It's a little opaque this far away historically, but it is most likely a reference to Nicholas III's part in a plot against Charles of Anjou, who became king of Naples and Sicily. Remember I told you in a previous episode of this podcast that Nicholas III tried to play all sides of the diplomatic game. And while he tried to align himself with Charles of Anjou, he also tried to undercut Charles of Anjou at the same moment in a very dastardly and difficult diplomatic game. Charles had reportedly refused to be married to Nicholas III's niece. Nicholas III, Pope Nicholas III, wanted Charles to marry his niece because, remember, this is the guy who took care of his cubs very well and placed them very well. We've already talked about nepotism and Nicholas III placed them very well and he would be another great placement if my niece married Charles of Anjou, the king of Naples and Sicily. Good grief. That would help the papacy stabilize a great deal and give a lot of power to the papacy itself. Allegedly and supposedly, and this is a little bit historically in doubt, Charles refused to marry Nicholas III's niece. The Eastern Emperor, that is the emperor over in the East in Constantinople, may have supplied the funds then for Nicholas III to partially underwrite a Sicilian rebellion, now called the Sicilian Vespers, that eventually led to the loss of Sicily by the House of Anjou. It could be payback for not marrying my niece, or it could be, in fact, a different way of looking at things. It could be just attempting to destabilize. And I remember I told you that Nicholas III even managed to, well, try a rapprochement with the Byzantium priests and a rapprochement of the East and the West of the church. So he was involved with them. He may have gotten some money from the Eastern emperor who would definitely 
like to have seen destabilization of the whole Sicilian and Neapolitan kingdom at the bottom of the Italian peninsula because of the way the power balances happened then. Nicholas III may have helped underwrite this rebellion, but let me tell you that all of what I've just told you historically is a best guess scenario, and there are many scholars, there are many commentators, and there are many historians who would say this is not the reference in the passage. Rather, there are other matters with Nicholas and Charles that can be brought up here. It's opaque partly because it's so cursory. Sit tight, as the passage says, for you are well punished. Keep watch over your ill-gotten gains that have made you so brave up against Charles. And while I have just gone into a gigantic historical explanation, maybe we're really supposed to pick up on that brave and the sarcasm in that word. You thought you could stand up to temporal and earthly leaders, but in fact, you were just relying on money and your wealth, and you thought that you were their equal. And maybe we should back away from Charles and the historical context of what's going on here and focus on the emotional context of bravery brought up by money. That is, having enough funds to make you think you can stand up to titular and, in fact, actual political heads. Okay, that's the first historical reference in the passage. Here's the second one, and it occurs right at the bottom. So we get that apocalyptic language about the woman with the seven heads and the ten horns and the evangelist seeing her sitting on the waters. All of that stuff, by the way, in Revelation, sitting on the waters is interpreted in the text itself to mean all the peoples of the earth. This woman who kind of has sway over the peoples of the earth, that's how it sits on the waters, gets interpreted in the passage in Revelation or Apocalypse itself. So we get all that stuff. And then the pilgrim goes on, you've made a god of silver and gold. Notice again, references to silver and gold. What's the difference between you and any other idolater except he prays to just one, whereas you pray to a hundred? Good grief, Constantine. And here's our final historical reference. You gave birth to a terrific evil, not because of your conversion, but because of your donation that let you make the first super rich holy father. What is our pilgrim and our poet talking about here? He's talking about a document called the Donation of Constantine. Remember, Constantine converts to Christianity. He sees the cross. He converts in the middle of the battle. He becomes the first Christian emperor. Uh, he assumes the church itself onto his power structure. This is always seen as problematic. And in fact, there was a document, a forged document that was even more problematic. This forged document came from probably the late 700s. It may have originated in France, but it originated wherever it did, most likely with papal support. It is called the Donation of Constantine, and here's the story. Allegedly, Constantine the Great was cured of leprosy by Pope Sylvester I, and Constantine eventually removed himself from the western part of the empire and removed himself to what is now Istanbul, thereby beginning the Byzantium Empire. Okay, so he removes himself from the west, and allegedly in this document, what he says is, because you cured me from leprosy, thank you very much, I give you control over the western part of the empire. You know the papacy loved this document, 
even though it's a forgery, because it granted them temporal political authority over the West as the emperor Constantine has removed himself to the East. This we now know is a forgery. Dante did not know this document was a forgery. Dante believed that this had actually happened. It's only, what, about a century after Dante that it becomes evident that this is a forgery. So Dante thinks that Constantine has made a grave mistake stake, not by being converted to Christianity, but by ceding temporal and political power to the papacy, which allows the popes to become super rich, which is the entire thematic of this passage, which brings us to my third point, the thematic resonances in the passage. There are two that I want to explore specifically. One is found in the dead middle of it, in which the pilgrim said, I'd use even rougher words than these if I didn't have so much reverence for the keys that you once carried in life, because your avarice saddens the entire world. We should pause right here because the word is used, avarice, in the Florentine. And you should say, but wait a minute, we've already seen the avaricious punished. They were punished up there in the fourth circle of hell. Here we are in the eighth circle, the third pocket. We saw them rolling those stones, remember? And the two groups are screaming out, why do you spend so much? And why do you, you know, save so much, keep so much back? And they're rolling these stones around the circle. We already saw the avaricious punished. How come this Pope, Nicholas, isn't up there? I think it has to do with the full line here. Yes, we've seen avarice as one of the seven deadly sins punished already, but here's the deal. It says, because your avarice saddens the entire world. This seems to be the difference. While that hole up there, that rut with the rocks being rolled around, was full of clerics in every direction. If you remember, it's basically all clerics up there. This is different because of the effect. It's not just keeping money to, you know, so that I have better clothes or so that I drive a better car, you know, (laughs) skimming a little off the church so I don't drive a Honda, I get to drive a nice Mercedes or something, you know, it's not just that. This avarice seems to be bigger. It saddens the entire world. And the difference is the scope of the effect. While up there, we seem to have a lot of tonsured folks who are keeping money for their own pleasure. In this case, the effects of this avarice are widening out to the entire world. You'll note then that there are levels of deadly sins of avarice and two This avarice is connected directly to fraud, and once it gets bound up with the fraud taking money and buying papal offices, bishoprics, archbishoprics, cardinal positions, everything that you can think of, seats in the curia, places in the bureaucracy, it saddens the entire world. I'm going to keep going back to the opening of Canto 19 and the reference the pilgrim makes to my beautiful San Giovanni. There seems to be a way in which this simony, this avarice, this selling of church offices ruins the beauty of the church and ultimately saddens the entire world. The effect of the destruction of the beautiful is a global 
sadness. And that seems to be the heart of Dante's problem. And that helps us link this passage back to the beginning of Canto 19 with my beautiful son Giovanni, and also back to the fourth circle and how avarice is practiced there. But there's a second thematic reference in this passage. It's in the very first line. I don't know whether I ventured too far into folly when I answered him with just this sort of verse. Folle, folly. We've seen this word before. It was in Canto 2. Remember when Dante doubts his worth to take this journey? He says to Virgil, listen, I can't go walking across the universe. It may just be folly, folly. And Virgil has to buck him up. Dante, you know, says, who am I? I'm not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. How can I go across the whole world? And Virgil has to launch him into this whole story about Beatrice and Beatrice trying to save him and all of this as an answer to Fole. And I told you then that the word Fole was going to come up several times in Inferno in important ways. And this is one of those passages. I don't know whether I ventured too far into Fole, into folly, when I answered him with just this sort of verse. And the word there used is meter. It's a recognition of poetry. And because just this sort of verse, this recognition of meter, of poetic style, of poetic craft, I would say that the folly here is the passage that follows. And listen, this may be too far into folly. Using this kind of vulgar language, using this kind of apocalyptic language, weaving a biblical text into a kind of apocalypse caused by the church, the popes are bringing about the end of the world. They are, their corruption is bringing about the very apocalypse itself. Because of all of that, it is folly. It's especially folly in the Middle Ages, and it's especially folly when the warlords who protect you are beholden to the church in various ways. This is breaching the walls of folly. Maybe to you and me today, you think, what is it to criticize the Pope? What is it to criticize the church? Maybe, especially if you're a Protestant or even an unbeliever, you think, what is it? Who cares? So what you kick the curia in Rome? Yeah, that's different from Dante. Dante is the true believer. Dante, in fact, believes he is the best believer. Dante is finding what is the supreme moment of beauty. You can't miss the art here. The supreme moment of beauty, the church, the basis of Dante's craft, corrupted and potentially bringing on the very apocalypse with the one who sits upon the waters and the seven heads and the ten horns. All of that is found in here. And in fact, this passage borders on folly and the folly plays out in the passage. Let's talk about that for just a sec. Remember I told you that opening biblical reference, Matthew 16, gets fused with Matthew 4? There's a moment of folly. That's a little bit garbled there. I mean, when Jesus gives Peter the keys, he doesn't say, follow me. So the passage is slightly garbled right there. Two, the reference to Charles. Remember I told you it's very opaque and maybe we should focus on the emotional import of the passage, but still the passage itself is a little garbled. It's a little bit difficult to follow. At three, remember I told you that it's not the woman who has seven heads and ten horns. It's the beast she sits on. That's 
a little bit garbled. That New Testament reference has been all changed around. Is that the folly of the pilgrim or the folly of the poet? Well, let me explain that for a sec. If it's the folly of the pilgrim, then the pilgrim is getting so carried away with his own invective against the church that he's starting to garble up biblical and historical references because of his anger at what's happening inside the church. If it's the poet's garbling, then the poet is the one who is engaging in mad overreach by misquoting Matthew and misquoting quoting Apocalypse or Revelations, misquoting bits of the New Testament, then the poet is very much sailing into folly. And I would even say that the folly Paul pays off in the very last bit where he says, you have made a god of silver and gold. What's the difference between you and any other idolater except that he prays to just one god, whereas you pray to a hundred? Now, of course, I get it, right? I get that it's the whole problem here is that, you know, an idolater plays to a false god, but you got all these coins flowing around, all these gold coins dropping on your head from everywhere as the Pope. So you're praying to hundreds of coins as they fall all around you, all of this money, but it's twisted. That is the worst line of the whole passage. Idolaters especially in the Judeo-Christian tradition, don't just pray to one God, they pray to many gods. They're polytheistic. That is kind of the root of idolatry, is the refusal of monotheism in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And here, it gets kind of garbled up. One doesn't usually think of an idolater as just praying to one God, whereas you're a polytheist. It's all twisted on itself right there. It doesn't quite make sense generally when you think of an idolater. The reference is here to the golden calf, but even if it is the golden calf at Mount Sinai, that's still just one amongst many gods as the Egyptians worshipped when the Israelites came out of Egypt. The passage gets torqued a little here. So the folly may be playing out for our pilgrim, who is getting the references Forked and twisted a little in every direction, or it may pale out for our poet, who is either himself so enraged that he's torquing and twisting the references, or, and I prefer this, so brave that his folly has led him to be able to recast even New Testament and perhaps historical references to fit his purpose of condemning the church for its love of money. No wonder this passage causes so much problems. So given all that, let's read it one more time with all I've said in your head. I don't know whether I ventured too far into folly when I answered him with just this sort of verse. Hold up. Tell me this. Just how much treasure did our Lord at first require of St. Peter before he entrusted him with the keys? I'm certain he asked no more than follow me. Neither Peter nor any of the other apostles took gold or silver from Matthias when he was picked to fill the place lost by the guilty soul. So sit tight, for you are well punished. Keep watch over the ill-gotten gains that made you so very brave up against Charles. And if I were not otherwise kept in check, 
by my reverence for the great keys that you once held in the easy-come-easy-go life up above, I'd use even rougher words than these, because your avarice saddens the entire world by traipsing over the good and lifting up the bad. The evangelist had your sort of pastors in mind when he saw the one who sits on the waters and fucks around with the kings of the earth, the woman who was born with seven heads and who got her power from the ten horns as long as her virtue pleased her groom. You have made a god of silver and gold. What's the difference between you and any other idolater except he prays to just one god, whereas you pray to a hundred good grief, Constantine. You gave birth to a terrific evil, not because of your conversion, but because of your donation that lets you make the first super rich holy father. A complicated passage, a long episode of the podcast. We have got yet one more episode to go about Canto 19, and then I want to do a retrospective on all of 19. It's a big canto, set here almost in the middle, a little past the midway point of Inferno, and I think it forms one of the pillars of Dante's poetic works. So subscribe to this podcast rate it give it a comment i would really appreciate it come back next time for the end of canto 19 and more of walking with dante i'm mark scarborough see you real soon